Well, we are going through the book of Luke. And is it just me or has it not been so good to be in a gospel and to see Jesus? Just to track with him because Christianity is not about a list of doctrines we tip our hat to. It's all about a person, Jesus. And so more than ever, we're getting to see him week after week after week after week. What is he like? What does he think? What does he say? I'm loving it. Hope you are too. And so today we're going to see the first major parable in the Gospel of Luke. We've seen some shorter ones already, but this is the first full-length parable. And in a way, it is the mother of all parables because Jesus uses this one to actually explain why he begins to speak in parables so often from this point forward in his ministry. From this point forward, he's going to roll through like nine parables. He begins to use parables repeatedly, and he's going to tell us why. And it might surprise you. Very often Christians, I hear them say, and I get it, oh, Jesus was a master teacher. He used illustrations, and he would do a parable to help you understand even better what he's saying. You might be surprised by what he says today as to why he uses parables. And this one is a very sobering parable. Because Jesus talks about the danger of hearing, but not really hearing. And of seeing, but not really seeing. In fact, he says that some of the people in this parable think they've heard him. But they've not really heard him because of something else that was going on in their heart that is still so often going on in our hearts today. Turn with me to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Luke chapter 8, verse 1. Does anybody have a Bible? I don't even hear the rustling of anything. Shake it if you got it. Okay, or your sad little app in your lap, whatever. Okay, I want you to have a Bible. Luke 8. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. I just want to point out, it's not one of my main points, but it's worth noticing The Bible is not a myth. You will find the writers writing in a way that is not like Greek mythology. They give details. They give names. They give dates. They give places. They give rulers. You just see it repeatedly with Luke. This really happened. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa. Herod is a secular ruler, you guys, that hates Christianity. Someone in his household got saved anyway and is following Jesus. I think that's really cool. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. Verse 4, and when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow. His seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on the rock, and as it grew, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. 
And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what the parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. He's quoting from Isaiah 6. This is exactly what Isaiah 6 says, and he's quoting it. I'll talk to you later in the message about why. Why would he say this? Why would he want that? Now, verse 11, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who've heard. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil... They are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast with an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So what can we learn about Jesus at this point in his ministry, which you need to understand is about one-third into his three years of full-time ministry? He had three years where he really did what he came to do. We are one-third into that At Luke chapter 8. So what can we learn? Number one. It's absolutely clear that Jesus came to proclaim the good news of his kingdom. Look at verse 1. Soon afterward he went on through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. That Greek word for proclaim is a word that means to announce and declare loudly and widely. It's used 30 times in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts. And here's why. Because Jesus did not come just to do something, you guys. He came to proclaim something new and radical And world-altering. You ready? He came to proclaim that the kingdom of God was now with men, among men. It's here now. He says it over and over in the Gospels. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God has come. In other words, he was inaugurating his new administration that will be consummated when he comes again a second time as king of kings and lord of lords. But make no mistake, his kingdom is with us now, mixed in with all the other political ideologies that are raging in our world today. And COVID and all the other craziness in our world cannot limit it or stop it. It's happening now. The kingdom of God is advancing. 
And you'll see him telling in parables, it looks like a little seed. It looks like a little bit of yeast. But oh my goodness, God is at work. And God delights to work in ways that is not always noticeable. But it doesn't mean God's not here. It doesn't mean God's not at work. And it doesn't mean God is not marching through history as he has been. And he's on plan A. It is a great time to be the people of God. The kingdom of God is with us. Regardless of what administration is ruling or reigning, what they're saying, what they're doing, what they say they're going to do. It's what God is doing that matters most and it cannot be stopped. And he hasn't called us to make something happen. Praise God. He's called us to be aware that something is happening and get in on it. And your best way to stay focused on what is happening and get on in it, in on it, is to turn off the TV and pick up your Bible. Turn it off. Turn off talk radio. Turn off the TV. Yeah, how will I know what's going on? I think you'll know. It's blowing up all around us. It'd be hard not to know. Enough! Just like he said to Esther. Uncle Mordecai said to her, God has raised you up for such a time as this. Stop wishing we lived 50 years ago when it was more agrarian and everyone was nice. And nobody cussed and everyone taught their kids to. You couldn't tell Christian from non-Christian. This is a great day to be the people of God. Because only the people of God would live the way God's called the people of God to live. It is now radical. It now looks very distinctive. It's a great day time to be a Christian. But you'll only know that if you're paying attention to what Jesus is saying. The kingdom of God is with us. With us. We're in it. And he is expanding his kingdom. But as so often happens, it was happening then and it's still happening today. As so often happens with human beings, This good news of the kingdom that he was proclaiming, guess what happened? As he proclaimed it, it got filtered through a list of time-bound temporal priorities that they had. So that they rejected what he was bringing and they demanded something he never intended to do. They're like, oh yeah, King Jesus, oh Messiah, the promised one, the sent one, good. Here's our list because you probably don't know what to do. Here's what we want you to do. Here's what we want. Is that not how we are, right? Here's what we want you to do, because I'm sure you don't know. They filtered his message of the kingdom through time-bound, temporal priorities that caused them to reject what he was bringing and demand something he never intended to do. Just feed us. We're going to get to the feeding of the 5,000. You realize when he fed the 5,000, all they did was show up a week later and they said, "Um, that was pretty amazing. But do you realize in the Old Testament, Moses, we got manna every day. Now, put that in your pipe and smoke it regarding miracles. When people are like, oh, if there was just more miracles today, people would believe. They saw him take little loaves and fish and feed 5,000 people. And all they did was say, do it every day. Do it every day. It happened every day with Moses. Who are you? Miracles do not convince everyone. God's word and God's spirit is what has to happen. And we've got, do we have God's word? Louder. Do we have God's spirit? And do we have direct access to his throne day and night with high priest Jesus? 
Let's go. Right? We got all we need. We got all we need. Don't feel bad for us and say, oh, I wish it was the book of Acts where cool stuff was happening. No. They didn't even have the whole Bible. So sorry for them. We got the whole Bible and we have so many more prophecies that have been fulfilled. We should have so much more confidence and faith and heart and hope. We're towards the end of this whole thing. And everything he ever promised has happened. And so we get to be his people now for these final few things. Exciting days to live for what matters most. I said, fix our biggest earthly problem. Feed us, heal us, and boot out the Roman oppressors. No different than today. And so number two, here's what I want you to see. People, number two, people tried to redefine this good news and the kingdom in their own way. Oh yeah, good news, kingdom, yeah. They tried to redefine this good news and the kingdom in their own way. Look what's going on in verse 4. And a great crowd was gathering. And people from town after town came to him. Woo! We would say, this is it. This is perfect. Look at the crowds, Jesus. You need to realize by this time in his ministry, huge crowds were following him. What does he do? And so he began to teach in parables. Because he knew something that we tend to forget in a day that just celebrates big no matter what. It's big. There's lots of people. Doesn't matter why they're there, what reason they're there. It's big. It's big. It's big. We are into big. Jesus is not. He began to teach in parables. Why? Because he could see something that we cannot see. He knew that everybody in that crowd was not there for the right reason. Because he could see their, say it, hearts. And so he began to separate. As he teaches in parables, he begins to separate the sincere seeker from the casual or merely curious listener. He begins to separate those, and there, and there were some, and there are today, who are thirsty for eternal life from those who just wanted him to fix their immediate earthly problem and fast. He began to separate those who were longing for his righteous rule and reign from those who simply wanted him to crush the oppressive Roman government so that they could reign again. They weren't interested in King Jesus reigning. We just want the Romans out so that we can reign again. See, at this point, we're 12 to 18 months into his ministry. So here's what this means. I mean, I did a little search and study Luke hasn't told us everything that's happened, so I reached back to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, pulled it all together to, think, to show you some of the biggest things that have happened up till Luke chapter 8. Here's what people have already seen. They've seen him turn 150 gallons of water, that's a lot, into not just wine, really good, 
award-winning California wine. Now, that'll get a crowd chasing after you. In a day that just had foul water. Oh, my goodness. Did you hear what he did? I was there. Best stuff I've ever tasted. In fact, it happened at the end of the wedding. Instead, Usually, they drag out the bad stuff. It happened at the end because it was only at the end they ran out of wine. And he turned water into wine. And it was amazing. They've seen him heal lepers. They've seen him heal the demon-possessed. They've seen him heal all kinds of diseases. They've seen him heal a paralyzed man. They've seen him heal a withered hand. They've seen him open blind eyes. They've seen him unstop deaf ears. They've seen him loose the tongue of the mute. And they've seen him bust up a funeral procession by raising the widow's son from the dead. So he sat up in the coffin and talked to his mama. That'll get you a crowd. And so... His popularity and the size of the crowds now are enormous. But he knows everybody in that crowd is not there for the right reason. Because he could see what's going on in their heart. So that's my third point. Number three, Jesus warns us to pay attention to how you hear his words. There's a totally different sermon I could have for some of you. Like, there's another problem, and it's not your problem because here you are today. It's a problem to not even hear God's word. You could live having no access, no exposure, no choice to even hear God's word. This sermon is about something else, you guys. You can be sitting under the sound of God's word or listening to it online or whatever way you're getting it and still be in a very dangerous, precarious condition. That's what Jesus wanted to do. He actually wants to just hit pause at this point and say, before I even teach you anything new, because a lot has already been said. Oh my goodness, I want you to understand. You can hear and you can hear. How have you been hearing my word? How? Not just you hear it, but how? He warns us. Look at the end of verse 8. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear. Let him hear. In other words, Jesus presses us to another level. He presses us to another level when he says, everybody's got ears on the side of their head. But everyone is not hearing this the way they should. Something's getting lost in translation. You're not hearing me. You're not hearing me. Make sure you're hearing me. Let him who has ears, let him hear, really hear. Jump down to verse 18 where he takes it up a notch and he explains why he's using parables now. When he says, take care then. What's the word? Say it. What's the next word? Say louder. How you hear. Not just that you hear, but how. Take care how you hear. Now listen to this. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. What is Jesus talking about? What does this person have that causes them to be given more? I tell you all the time, read things in context, right? Back it up and push it out. So verse 18 is a summary statement that's talking about the parable of the soils. He's saying, 
this person that has the right kind of soil in their heart will get more understanding as to who I am and what I really came to do. The person who does not have the right kind of soil, they won't get more information and they won't get greater understanding. Now, I know right now we live in the land of everything should be for everybody and choices and that doesn't sound fair. Let me help you. Our God is very loving, very good, very merciful, very gracious, to the extent that if he sees someone has already hunkered down and decided it doesn't matter what I'm showing, it doesn't matter what evidence, data, information I'm given, I'm going to resist it. I will not believe he will not give you more because you will just come under greater condemnation and judgment for having been given more. Do you understand? It's not a good thing that you just keep getting it and keep getting it and keep getting it. He's good enough and merciful enough. He will not cast his pearls before swine. If he sees you already decided, predecided, it doesn't matter. So don't hear me. We should never be involved in apologetics and show how to give some evidence. But I hope you realize people can see evidence and evidence and evidence and evidence and credibility and still say, I don't believe. Why? They've already decided not to believe. It doesn't matter what I see. I'm not going to believe. And he says, now I'm speaking in parables so that those who are seeking and truly want to know, they'll be given more. And those who are not, even what they think they have is going to be taken away. Now that's scary, but that's biblical. That's biblical. What's going on in your heart? Listen to me. Jesus is saying, here's what he's teaching. Jesus is saying that your heart affects your hearing and is the biggest factor in determining what you get or don't get from his word. Do you realize that? Your heart is at play and your heart that you bring to the... So here's a preaching moment. Every single one of you brought a heart. You realize that? You brought a heart to this moment. What's going on in your heart is the biggest factor in determining what you will get or not get from his word. We tend to critique the sermon and the preacher as to whether we got, you know, I got nothing out of that. He's pathetic. There's a place for that. But Jesus is actually saying the number one factor as to whether or not you get anything out of his word is what's going on in your heart while it was being said. Your heart affects your hearing. Your heart affects your hearing. These two things affect each other. So you don't just hear things. You hear things based on what's going on in your heart as you hear it. You hear things, but that's why, I mean, think about it. This is... This is helpful, you guys. I know it's a little scary, but it's also helpful. Why do people sit under sermons and one person will say, best sermon ever, oh my goodness. And the other person's like, whatever. And someone gets saved and you think, oh, do it like that every time. Say it just like that every time because that worked. That's not how this works, you guys. There's different hearts all over the place. Somebody brought a different heart to that moment that produced a very different result. 
God's word is God's word. He says the seed is the word of God. The ultimate sower is God himself. So don't hear me saying I don't work hard to communicate well and want the other guys to do so. But the biggest factor is not ultimately your human communicator. God is the ultimate sower and his word is the seed. And Jesus is saying the heart that you bring to the moment that you're hearing God's word is the biggest factor in determining what you'll get or not get out of it. So let's talk about these heart conditions. These heart conditions are represented by four soils. These are four different hearts he's going to talk about. Number one, he says your hard heart, hard heart, will simply ignore or reject God's word altogether. Look at what he's talking about in verse 5 and 12. Start with verse 5. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. Jump down to verse 12, because his explanation makes it even more clear and scarier what's going on. Look at verse 12. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes. That bird in verse 5, it's the devil in verse 12. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they may not believe and be saved. Jesus is talking about people who listen to a sermon. You might be listening online now or in person. People who go to church. People who even pick up God's word from time to time and thumb through it but have already decided when they approach it, they've set their jaw to resist and fight against it, whatever they hear. They've already purposed to resist and fight what they hear because they don't want God to rule over them. They don't want to acknowledge someone else they're accountable to. They don't want life to be that way. They've already decided, I'm gonna ignore his kingdom, and I'm going to ignore his challenges to my lifestyle. Because I don't know what you find. As I read the Bible, I don't find myself saying over and over, that's exactly what I would have thought. The first would be last. Make me last. Servant is greater than all. Oh, I want to serve. Give me the dirtiest feet. Give away more, and he'll give you more. Exactly what I woke up thinking. No, it's radically different. And so they resist the concept of a kingdom and a king and accountability and that you were created in the image of God and he owns you and you're going to stand before him. They've already decided I don't. I try to read atheists and those that do not believe. It helps me think better. And I love it when every now and then one will be honest and will say, it's not lack of evidence. I mean, we live in a day that's done such a great job of coming up with more and more and more and more evidence and credibility to Christianity. They'll say it's not lack of evidence, and it's not that I don't see anybody smart coming to faith in Christ. That is so not true. Smart people are coming to faith in Christ. They'll say, it's that I don't want the world to be that way. I don't want there to be a God. Well, thank you very much. And so no amount of evidence is going to change that. They've decided to resist and fight what they hear no matter what, did you know it is possible to be in contact with the word of God regularly and still not have it affect you personally? 
It's like water off a duck. Just Teflon. It just doesn't stick. Doesn't stick. You could come into, this is scary, you guys. You could come into contact with God's word regularly and still not have it affect you personally because you have a hard heart that's been trampled and beaten down by your own desires and the lies of this world to the point that's been a well-worn, hardened path so that when the seed goes out, it just lands on that hard soil. And here's the scary thing. Satan is not omnipresent like our God. He cannot be everywhere. He cannot do everything. But let me tell you what one of his top priorities is. He knows the power of God's word better than we do. When he sees seed landing on a hard heart that is not broken up, that is not receptive, that is not interested, he snatches it away. Oh, he is all about blinding and snatching, blinding and snatching. We can find this same parable in Matthew, Matthew chapter 13. And Matthew actually uses the Greek word instead of take, Luke said, takes it away. Matthew said he comes and snatches it away. And the, and the Greek word for snatch is one that means to move suddenly and violently. Suddenly and violently. Whoo! I just saw that person. They heard it. And they're resisting suddenly and violently. Take it away before they soften their heart, before they change their mind. And here's what's ironic. Typically, the hard-hearted man or woman, they think of themselves as a strong, self-made man or woman who's independent and not subject to being influenced by the weak thinking of other people and Christians and Christianity. When in fact, this passage is teaching you, my friend, you are a victim, even a prisoner of the evil one, Satan. You're a victim. You're a prisoner of the evil one, Satan. That's what Jesus says, that the devil snatches it away. It's the same thing Paul was saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, he says, you ever wonder why? Why do some people respond and say, this is such good news, the gospel? And others are like, that sounds terrible. I'd have to change my life. No way. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God, little g, of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Don't continue to take pride in how independent you are. Oh my goodness, you are being taken advantage of by the evil one, Satan. You're snatching God's word away, snatching it away. What about you? You're in church, yay. Or you're listening online. But do you listen with a hard heart that comes ready not to receive? Ready to resist. Rehearsing all of your well-worn arguments. And some of you, you've been doing it for years and years and years. What you hold on to. What you rehearse, what you say to yourself, what you choose to believe to keep this truth and this message at bay. Because, yes, it's good news, but it's frightening. It's also frightening. 
Because one of our biggest deals is I want to be autonomous. I want to be autonomous. I want to call the shots. I want to. What is it that you just keep saying over and over? It's a well-worn path in your heart that's just gotten beat down and hardened. Be careful. Be careful. If that's you, that is a dangerous condition to be in. And you need to pray, God, soften my heart. Make me willing to receive your word. Break up the hard, fallow ground. But look at this second soil, number two. Your shallow heart, he says, will rejoice at first. And then fall away when things get tough. Look at verse 13. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word. Now I want you to notice, all four hearts hear the word. That is not the problem. All hear it. When they hear the word, they receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in a time of testing, fall away. Now, here's the other thing I don't want you to get confused about. The Bible does not teach you can be saved and then not saved. A Christian and then not a Christian. That's not what this passage is teaching. When they fall away, it shows they were never born again in the first place. They were never saved to begin with. The Bible is not all about great beginnings, you guys. No matter how frothy and emotional it is, you may have shaked and fell on the ground, barked like a dog. I don't know what you did. But if it was just all emotion and it doesn't cause you to persevere, the Bible is all about how you end, how you end. And you can stumble and fall and get back up and you can be very weak. And you, But if you continue to persevere, By God's grace, that is evident that you've been born again and are in the kingdom. It's not as flashy. Some of the most flashy stuff is short. But again, just like we live in a world that large is exciting, flashy is exciting. Be careful. Jesus didn't say flashy is exciting. They receive it with joy. Oh, I was there. They They cried. He cried. Yes, people cry for a lot of reasons, you guys. They receive it with joy, but then, and again, how many of us are going to face trouble and trials? It's going to happen. And if you fall away, because here's what so often happens. You hear people say it this way. Oh, I tried Christianity. It doesn't work. What they mean is it didn't do for me what I wanted it to do. King Jesus didn't ride shotgun and help me get what I always wanted to get. And so what happens is when heat comes and they face suffering and trouble, they say, what? If Jesus can't make me more comfortable, if he can't take care of me better than this, if he can't help me get the things I want, I'm out. I'm done. I'm not going to follow him. Why would I follow him? Which shows when they say, I'm out, I'm done, it shows what their real God's, little G's, were all along and where their heart was focused all along. See, Jesus says these people, this soil, this heart has had an emotional experience and they think, they think they've entered my kingdom, but what they've actually done 
is they've tried to get me to enter their kingdom and help them fulfill their agenda. And there's a lot of scary Christian books. Almost all the best-selling Christian books are terrible. There, I just said it. If it's at the top of the chart, don't buy it. There are a few exceptions. But it's because the human heart wants what it wants. And that's why the name it, claim it, blab it, grab it. The king's kids go first class. The king said, I have no place to lay my head. Foxes have holes, but I don't have a home. You did not get this. He's going to take care of you. No cancer, no unemployment, no rebellious kids. You did not get that from the Bible. Lots of emotion. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. Enthusiasm is not the problem. Okay? So I hope you know me. I'm sweating right now. I'm frothy. I think we should be excited. I, oh, I'm not against emotion regarding Jesus. When you come to faith in Christ, oh my goodness, it ought to be exciting because it changes everything. I'll never forget this guy that got saved on Easter and I began to meet with him the following week and weeks after that to disciple him some. I didn't even have to tell him. It was one of the most wonderful things I've ever seen in front of me. He kept coming back week after week just saying, it was almost like I'm just listening and God's doing all the work. He just kept saying, Pastor Brad, this changes everything. This changes everything. This changes how I handle my money. I hadn't even mentioned money, but you're right. This changes how I relate to my wife in our marriage. You're right. This changes how I do my job. Still the same job, but I do it for a different reason. I'm like, I think you're saved. You're in the kingdom. Everything is different. And he was emotional. And he's a pretty even-keeled little computer programmer. But as much emotion as ever shows up, it was there. He was like mildly frothy. Because it's exciting. You're like, oh my goodness, I was dead, but I'm alive. I was in dark, but it's light. I was lied to, but now there's truth. <sighs> so emotion is not the problem. Enthusiasm is not the problem. But hear me, saving faith does not just produce emotion. It will produce the ability to persevere and endure When the heat comes. Because it's not based on feelings. It's based on who Jesus is. And what he's done for you. Oh I love it when I have feelings. But folks feelings will fade. Some of you maybe if you you weren't saved at seven. And you were saved as an adult. It can be a little more this way. And you remember it's like. Oh my goodness. I'm walking like six feet off the ground. I would venture to guess you got over that. And your feet hit the ground. And if you're not careful, you can say, how do, I, how do I keep this? How do I have it always feel this way? You don't. There's days when I have feelings and I love it. And there's days when I still follow Jesus without the feeling because I know it's true and he's true and he died for me and he lives for me and I am in a relationship with him. Feelings can fade. But when it's saving faith, you keep moving forward. And you don't throw in the towel and say, it doesn't work. He didn't get me everything I want. He says, ooh, watch out. This soil looks amazing at first. But then, as the testing and trials hit, they fall away. Fall away. Look at this third soil. He says, your divided heart will choke the word out. As you chase after other things. Look at verse 14. And as for what fell among the thorns. They are those who 
We got it again. Do they hear God's word? Yep. They hear. But as they go their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. Again, be careful. Don't hear me saying if you struggle with the cares of life, I guess you're not saved. If you're tempted by riches and pleasure and you have to fight, you're not saved. It's talking about does that characterize you and have you given yourself over to it? We're all going to struggle with these things he's listing. Cares, riches, pleasures. But these people allow it to choke out the seed completely. Because just like soil number two, they looked good initially. I don't know if you know anything about trying to plant some flowers or plant a vegetable garden or whatever. You can go out in your yard and pick your spot. And it might have dandelions and all kinds of nasty weeds. And if you just take a flat shovel and you just barely, barely snag it and just peel the surface off and flip it over. You just turned it over. You've not addressed the problem. And all that is still there. And it will all just grow up together with your seeds and choke it up. You've got to get those things up by the root. You've got to clean that soil and then plant the seed. The weeds that were totally still there. Nothing has changed. Choke it out. And here's what's interesting. This is, again, not someone who's a believer that's struggling. This is someone who's not a believer. They're not saved. They're not in the kingdom. Because that word for choke, in the Greek language, they had, they had a prefix they could put on the front of something to heighten it or intensify it. So the verb choke is a verb, and they've put that prefix on the front. So the word choke means to limit the development of something. And then you heighten it with the prefix, and it means to choke it out completely. It's gone. It's done. Because this person made no space for the word and stayed so preoccupied and distracted by exactly what they were preoccupied and distracted with before, they heard the good news. He starts with cares. We can all relate to that, right? I mean, there's plenty. That word care right there is the Greek word merimnao, made of two words. Merizo, that meant to divide, and noose. Mind. It's to have a divided mind. It literally means to be pulled in different directions. Isn't that what it feels like sometimes in life? It gets translated in our English Bibles, cares, worries, anxieties. So don't hear me saying if you worry, oh, you're not born again. This soil is someone, the cares and the worries and the anxieties have completely overwhelmed them and they are still... And and this is usually focused on basic survival when you think cares. Just trying to put food on the table, just trying to get the car fixed, just trying to make sure our health's okay. Cares, anxieties, worries. It's the second part that I think is far more dangerous, especially to us here in America. He says, let me tell you what else. So you don't have to wonder, what are these weeds that would choke out the seed? He's given us three. Cares, riches, pleasures. We tend to think, Oh, man, more money? I can't think of a negative downside to that at all. Bring it. Let me help you here. Don't hear me saying more money can't be helpful in certain instances. It's very dangerous. There are other countries where people are basically every day focused on survival. And that's hard. But in some ways, they don't, they don't have the danger of being seduced like we are in this nation. You still have it really good here, American Christian. You still have it really good. 
And he's talking about with riches. Here's what he's talking about. That insatiable, sinful tendency that we have to just push out the borders of our life continually with bigger and better, bigger and better, bigger. It breaks my heart. I've been here 25 years, so I overhear some of the conversations, you guys. I'll just hear somebody say, oh, my husband got a raise, so we're going to build a bigger house. We're going to buy a bigger house. We're going to get better. Oh, please don't. Do you have to just keep? It's like bigger house, better neighborhood, better vacations, better schools for the kids, and it's never enough. It's always that next thing, that next thing. This is a heart that craves the finer things of life and is always focused on preserving, protecting, and multiplying what I have. What's that next thing? It's not enough. What's that next thing? It's not enough. And I hope you realize, you may be looking at a a tax bracket ahead of you thinking, oh, if just, I'd never ask for another thing again. Liar. When you get to that next category, what happens is there's people in that category that at the top of the category and you're the bottom of the category. You're like, oh, but, hmm. And then when you get to the top of the category, it enables you to have a view that sees the next category. And you're like, oh, and it doesn't end. It doesn't end. And he says, because again, I reach over to Matthew 13, where Matthew is recording the same parable. Matthew puts a qualifying word in front of riches that is very, very insightful. He says the deceitfulness of riches. It can deceive you and seduce you, your heart, into staying so preoccupied on money and what it can do, and money and what it can buy, and materialism and what it can do. He says, watch out. Watch out. That could choke out the seed. Choke it out. But praise God, there is a fourth soil that he says, here's what you want to have. Here's what you want. Number four, your open heart. Your open heart will live out his word and seek to work it in to your life. Work it in and live it out. Work it in and live it out. See, look at me. There's a big difference between just hearing God's word. I know a lot of Bible. Do you know you can know a lot of Bible and still be really mean and on your way to hell and not look like Jesus? Give me a barely beyond stupid true Christian and she and I will get more done for the kingdom then super smart, I know lots of Bible, but I'm mean. We need people who have worked it into their life and are living it out, living it out. Even if they still don't understand Revelation, I'll take you. I still don't know what the wheel within the wheel is in Ezekiel, I'll take you. If you love Jesus and know Jesus and are taking what you do know and working it into your life and living it out, God can do great things through you. He says, the soil that is a true believer, that is in the kingdom, that's been born again. Three characteristics. Look at it in verse 15. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Three things. They hold it fast. They bear fruit. and They have patience. That word hold it fast in the Greek literally means to get a hold of it and seek to submit and bring yourself into conformity to it. 
Oh, that's very different than I just know what the Bible says. I'm trying to do what the Bible says in my life. They get a hold of it. They hold it fast. And they seek to submit to it and bring their life into conformity to it. And they bear fruit. Starting with the fruit of the Spirit. Oh my goodness. Do we need more people bearing the fruit of the Spirit? Love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness. Goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That will stand out, you guys. That will stand out. And when you know him and his seed has taken root and it's alive, it will bear this kind of fruit. And then the third thing, patience is a sad English translation, I think, because we tend to think, okay, patience, yeah, whatever. The word in the Greek is hupomeno, that means to stand up under something heavy and hard and not collapse. Oh, hello. We're back to that whole, they don't fall away. Don't hear me saying you don't fall down. Proverbs 24 says, a righteous man or woman falls seven times, yet rises again. It's about persevering. It's about finishing. It's about the, do you have any capacity To stand up under a load of something you would not have chosen. It's not working out how I thought. But he's with me. He's in me. His promises are real. My biggest problem is solved. I don't give up. I don't collapse. I don't throw in the towel. And I still. People are saying, how can you be this way while your son does blah, blah, blah? How can you be this way as you go through your divorce? How can you be this way if you found out you have breast cancer? And there's still just this love, peace, Patience, kindness, I'll tell you how. Because the seed of God's word took root and is bearing fruit in that life. So here's the real question, you guys, that Jesus is driving home to us today. It was what he was doing that day in the crowd, and I think he wants to do it today. How has your heart, we're eight chapters into this now. How has your heart been responding to the word that you've heard as we're going through Luke? Before you hear another new thing, how has your heart been responding to the word you've heard? And has the good seed of God's word taken root in your heart yet? Or is it just lying there on hard soil? Or is it just being choked out? Because your priorities don't look any different than unbelievers around you. You're going after the same stuff they are. You're, You're living for the same stuff they are. And make sure you understand, since we're talking about God's word, it's just not how do you respond to God's word. It's how you respond to God's son, the living word. You see, Jesus, the son of God, took on flesh and came into our world to be the ultimate perfect seed, seed of life that would die for us so that we could live for him. That's why in John chapter 12, leading up to his death and resurrection, all through the gospels, you'll see him say, my hour has not yet come. In my own personal Bible reading this, this last week, his, his earthly brothers were saying, hey, why don't you reveal yourself publicly? Are you going down to Jerusalem? You're going to show everybody who you are? Do an amazing miracle there. And he said, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Well, when he gets close to the end of his three years and he gets close to going to the cross, 
He says, my hour has come. I didn't come to feed people. I didn't come to heal people. I didn't come to crush the oppressive Roman government. I'm about to do what I really came to do. Listen to what he says in John 12. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Oh my goodness. More than making little fish and loaves feed 5,000 people. His death and resurrection, conquering sin and Satan and hell is where he is most glorified because that's our biggest problem. Truly, truly, I say to you, listen to this, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now is my soul troubled. He was fully human and fully God. So his humanity did not want to go to the cross. Knew he was not going there just to be mutilated with a spear and thorns and nails. That he was going to have the wrath of God poured out on him for our sin. He recoiled from that and said, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. The hour has come. And my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for, for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He obeyed. He followed. He persevered. And when you know him and he lives in you, that same Jesus that though he did not want to, went and did what the father had called him and sent him to do is the same Jesus that lives in you and will enable you and me to do what we do not think we could do, would not want to do, but he's living in us. Come to Christ today. Put your trust in Christ today. Don't harden your heart. And don't keep chasing after the things of this world. Life's a vapor. Time is short. We're at the end. Examine yourself and see if you be in the faith. Are you born again? Are you saved? Have you heard his word in the right way? Have you truly heard it? And has it taken root in you? And is it changing you from the inside out? He died for you. He rose again for you. He loves you. And he is calling you. But do you have ears to really hear? Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for direct access to your throne. And thank you. For not just shouting good news from heaven, but taking on flesh and coming into this messed up, dark, broken world to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And now that we're not abandoned, we're not orphaned, we're not alone. You said, if I go, I'll send you the helper. God, I thank you that every, every man or woman in this room and listening online that is in the kingdom, that knows you, that is holding fast your word and bearing fruit and persevering, has your spirit in them.
with them. Oh God, for anyone here who truly does not know you, grant them today to hear your word in the right way, maybe for the very first time. Rescue, redeem, save for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.